So today, carrying along with the theme of, uh, we've been doing a lot about reading the Bible and how to read the Bible. Joe's been talking about setting yourself up with some plans. And at different times, we've talked about the different literature that's in the Bible. Uh, today, I kind of want to tackle the parables. And uh, the parables are a, are a good way to draw lessons um, directly from the teaching of Jesus without necessarily... You can kind of, you can read into them. We'll talk about that today if you want more meaning and you can revisit them. Um, but at, just even on the onset, there, there's, onset, there's something that's, that's tangible there for people. Some people don't like the deep dives, but they still want to get the lesson. And parables offer a little bit for everybody in that regard. So let's talk a little bit about parables, where they came from, um, you know, was Jesus different in the use of parables or what was going on at the time with parables? So, uh, parables, the word parable comes from a Greek word, uh, conjunction of para and bole, and the idea of throwing um, and alongside. And I think what they mean by the parable is you have, you have the story which tells you something, but then you have another meaning that goes alongside the story. And so that's where parables got their name. Um, and parables were, were common. Uh, the Greeks stole a lot of parables. I'd like to differentiate those from fables. Uh, fables were something different. We think about the Greeks and we think about fables. Uh, fables are different than parables. Fables usually have some kind of animal and some lesson and uh, they tend not to be focused on human stories and uh, anthropomorphic animals, the animal people story. And that's, that's pretty common in most cultures around the world. Parables are really about, for the most part, about humans doing things. And uh, they tend to be simple teachings and illustrations or narratives. Um, some people debate whether they're just meant there for a quick lesson or if we're supposed to look into them to find layers of allegory. Um, I'd say it's kind of, I think there's layers there. Um, and we'll talk about Jesus talking about the layers. Uh, parables were used in Greece and very often used by rabbis. So um, a lot of teachings at the time when we go back and we look at some of the scrolls and some of the things that are recorded, we see that the rabbis, other Jewish teachers, were also teaching in parables. So it's not uncommon. It's not necessarily like this is something... Jesus just made up. Jesus was using the storytelling of the time, um, especially within his own, his own nation. There was a lot of parables. Um, but he did have some unique parables. And uh, any meaning and allegory that when we read them at face of value, um, we're going to find more meaning if, we leave, if, we like, if we're reading them within the range of the culture or the historicity that they were given. And we'll talk about that today. I'll give you a few examples of that. Um, Jesus chose to speak in parables at many times. Um, there are a lot of parables in all of the Gospels. Um, there are parables that show up in each Gospel, or at least in three of the Gospels that all match each other. Um, so he really was known as a parable-speaking guy. And uh, we'll talk a little bit about that. Uh, the idea that you are to take lessons of an ordinary or recognizable event something that we can identify with as humans and conclude spiritual truths from it. 
Um, and talking about Jesus with parables, we'll read Mark 4, just as kind of a prelude. And when he was alone, those around him with the twelve asked him about the parables. And he said to them, to you has been given the secret of the kingdom of God, but for those outside, everything is in parables, so that they may indeed see, but not perceive, they may indeed hear, but not understand, lest they should turn and be forgiven. That's a quote out of Isaiah that he's quoting. And then he said to them, do you not understand this parable? How then will you understand all of the parables? The sower sows the word. And these are the ones along the path where the word is sown. When they hear, Satan immediately comes and takes away the word that is sown in them. And these are the ones that are sown on rocky ground. The ones who, when they hear the word, immediately receive it with joy. But they have no root in themselves, but endure for a while. Then, when tribulation or persecution arises on account of the word, immediately they fall away. And the others are the ones sown among thorns. They, the, they are those who hear the word, but the cares of the word and the deceitfulness of riches and desires for other things enter in and choke that word, and it proves unfruitful. But those, are, but those that were sown on the good soil are the ones who hear the word and accept it and bear fruit thirtyfold, sixtyfold, and hundredfold. And so I think in this, he's talking about, as he's speaking these parables forth, as he's, as he's coming together with these teachings, He's saying because there's depth to this, because there's some thought that has to go into this, some people are grabbing onto it, some people are not. Some people are thinking about it and Satan distracts them. The enemy distracts them. Some of them uh, receive it joyfully and they enjoy it for the time, but they don't meditate on it. That's the rocky ground. There's that excitement level from listening and learning. And then because it's not, it's not taking root, it's a surface value thing, they lose it. And then there's others that hear it, and they might have been excited, but they've got so much going on in their life, they're so focused on the cares of the world that the meaning and the lessons are immediately choked. And then he's like, at the end, I believe what he's saying, the good ones are the ones that ponder these things, and then they bear fruit from the lessons and the learning that we're told. And uh, I want to point out here, he says, to you have been given the secrets of the kingdom of God. So I think that he's giving some straight teachings to his disciples. I don't think he's hiding a lot of things from his disciples. But when he's speaking in public, he's using parables. And he's talking about those that are going to hear and see, but they're not going to understand. This was prophesied back in Isaiah. Um, so the idea that, they, that these, do have, these do have layers of meaning. People are hearing these. They're getting some kind of lesson, but they're not necessarily getting everything. Um, get all eighth grade English on you. There's different types of parables. And it's not super important, but it helps us to categorize some of the stuff that Jesus is saying and whether we're really supposed to look for hidden meanings or whether we just say it because he's already laid out a lesson afterwards. Um, one type of parable that they talk about is a similitude. And these are the very short and concise ones. And sometimes they're just like two-line stories that Jesus says. Um, and uh, it's usually something that everyone is familiar with. It's usually something we can all identify with timelessly. Um, and so we'll talk about a couple of those later. Uh, the second type of parable, and they just called it parable, which types of parables and then calling it parable again. I put on there, that's confusing. I don't know why they did that. 
Um, but that's what our academics say. And these are longer stories. It's usually a one-time event, um, fictitious, but kind of dramatic in flair. Uh, the prodigal son is one of those, and we're going to go through the prodigal son today in great CCF tradition. And uh, the two sons, there are different stories that are very parable-oriented, where it is a long story. And uh, it's a one-time kind of event. Then there's the exemplary story, where there is a story given directly to a question. And that story is usually a great example for an answer to that question. Um, you don't need to remember all this. This is just there to say that there are different types of parables that Jesus puts out. And when he puts out these parables, we can identify that some of these parables mean more than they surface value look like. Um, the Good Samaritan, and we'll talk about that today, is a good example of an exemplary story. Um, because the, the person of the law asked directly, hey, Jesus, this. And they're kind of trying to trap him and trick him up in this, but Jesus answers with the story and then directly gives them the answer after the story. Um, when we read parables, it's very good to keep in mind that the passages usually talk about who is present when Jesus tells the stories. We'll, we'll cover that next. So there are audiences to these parables, and looking at the audience to these parables, sometimes we can see different things based on who he's talking to. Um, the audience is required to kind of plug the story into what they know or what they were living in. Um, so let's look at a quick uh, similitude, which is one of those quick, concise ones. Uh, and we're going to do Luke 15 because Luke 15 has three right in a row that are pretty good examples of these different parables and how, while they have similarities, they can, um, there's some different things between them actually. Um, Luke 15, now the tax collectors and the sinners, so you got two groups of people gathering around Jesus. So let's start there. There's his audience. He's got tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to him, and the Pharisees and the scribes were also there, grumbling, saying, this man is receiving sinners, and he eats with them. And so you have two groups of people there. You have the tax collectors and the sinners, and then you have the Pharisees and the scribes right here too, and then Jesus is going to break out some stories. So those are his audience at the time. And so he told them this parable. What man of you, having a hundred sheep, if he has lost one of them, does not leave the 99 in the open country and go after the one that is lost until he finds it? And when he has found it, he lays it on its shoulders, rejoicing. And when he comes home, he calls together his friends and his neighbors, saying to them, Rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep that was lost. Just so I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. So this is a parable where Jesus has told you what it means. He gave you the story, and then he broke it down at the end. Now, the way he breaks it down, you can get multiple lessons from that. If you're going to read this part, just so I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. If I'm one of the tax collectors of the sinners... My takeaway is going to be different than if I were one of the Pharisees. There's multiple lessons there. That's the idea of it. So if I'm a sinner or a tax collector, I'm listening to Jesus sum up in that line. 
And I'm like, this is great news. Heaven is happy when we come forth into this. If I'm one of the grumbling Pharisees and scribes, and I'm listening to this, I might get a little, uh, it, might, it might get some things riled up in me. Because Jesus says, well, you know, we already are looking down on these people, and now Jesus is saying, there's more joy over those people than there are maybe over us. We, of course, are the righteous persons. So they're taking a different thought from what Jesus is saying than the other group. So that's an example of a parable where he lays out the story, he gives the meanings, and you can see within the audience that different people are going to take different things. Now, if I were a Pharisee or a scribe, and I was being honest and open-hearted about it and not taking offense right away, I'm going to get a different lesson. So we don't know. We don't know how they all took it. This is a short one. So immediately, immediately after that, he says, Or what woman, having ten silver coins, if she loses one coin, does not light a lamp and sweep the house and seek diligently until she finds it? And when she has found it, she calls together her friends and neighbors, saying, Rejoice with me, for I have found the coin that I had lost. Just so I tell you, there is joy before the angels of God over one sinner who repents. So he's driving that home again for the sinners. There is joy when you come forth and get into the kingdom of God. Now, what's interesting with that is, is the use, we would not catch this, is the use of 10 silver coins. Why 10 silver coins? Why does that matter? Why couldn't Jesus just said, there was a woman who lost a valuable coin and she had to search her house to find it. Um, so we read this, and while we are getting the meaning of this, it, it takes us back to the, the one that left, and he left the 99 to go get it. There's actually more to the 10 silver coins. Here's the plot twist. It was a Jewish custom for a woman to possess 10 silver or gold coins, which will be presented by the bridegroom on the day of their engagement. So these 10 coins were basically what we would do now as an engagement ring. All right, so there's a little more meaning to those coins. Those coins, it's not just, I had 10 dimes at home. I came home, I threw my jeans off, and I went to bed, and as I threw my jeans off, I lost a dime, and I knew that I heard that dime roll under the bed. Now, I wouldn't really care about the dime. I would get it eventually, but that's not a big deal. But, taken in the context of, I got home late at night, and I heard my engagement ring plop off my nightstand and roll somewhere, has a little more meaning. There's a little more worth to that. Um, and from that day till the day of the marriage, talking about these coins, uh, she has to take the coins. She, she has to take the coins often and they wipe them and clean them, um, which means that she is thinking of the groom so that on the day of marriage, those coins are displayed on their ornaments. So she would, she would wear this on the day of the wedding, to go to the wedding. She would also wear this, when I looked into this, she would also wear this out in public. It really did serve like an engagement ring. So she would have 10 shining bright coins adorning her when she would go out to say, hey, I'm taken. I'm in contract with this man. As this man is out preparing the house, he would give her the coins before he would go back and build the house and prepare the house. Um, either on or there, so... Where I leave off. She has to take those coins out often and she keeps wiping them, which means she is thinking of the groom. And so on the day of marriage, those coins are displayed on their ornaments, either on their head or on a chain. So the more those coins shine, the more she has thought on the groom. If those coins don't shine, then that will reflect the girl's character in the culture. 
Now, considering she has lost one of the coins, sometimes the marriage could even stop. Uh, The groom can simply assume that she is not responsible, nor is she really interested in the groom. And so that was the seriousness of those coins. So when he's bringing up the 10 silver coins, now when we go back and we look at this, we can still get the meaning that's very reminiscent of leaving the 99 to get the one. But now there's marriage overtones to this too. And as a Jew, and as a Christian now, we think about the marriage feast at the end. And it also makes me think, like if you think about the Bible and the parables, you start thinking about the bridesmaids and the brides who are preparing their oil. And it it throws to that parable too. So there's just, there's different connections within this. It's not just, she just dropped one out of 10 coins. Kind of a lame story. But when you add that, that, when you know the context and the historicity, now you're looking into this and you're seeing where marriage is playing in. Maybe there's some marriage things in here. Or maybe those coins are just more important and now I understand why those coins are important. But uh, the fact that it has to do with the marriage might make you think of the marriage feast, make you think of believing loyalty and being in with Yahweh at this time. Um, so there's just, a, there's just another layer there. And again, he's still talking to the sinners and he's still talking to the scribes and the Pharisees. And, but they all know culturally what those 10 coins are about. So we'll continue on in Luke 15. And he said there was a man who had two sons. And the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of property that is coming to me. And he divided his property between them. Not many days later, the younger son gathered all he had had and took a journey into a far country, and there he squandered his property in reckless living. And when he had spent everything, a severe famine arose in the country, and he began to be in need. So he went and he hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country, who sent him into, the, into his fields to feed pigs. And he was longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate, and no one gave him anything. My dad preached on the prodigal son like once or twice a year, usually, so I'm not going to go into all the hidden meetings of the prodigal son. Um, but we'll, we'll touch on that at the end. There's a lot of stuff there, especially in a Jewish culture. Um, and when he came to himself, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread, but I perish here with hunger? I will arise and go to my father, and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. And he arose and he came to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, Quickly, bring me the best robe and put it on him and put a ring on his hand and the shoes on his feet and bring the fattened calf and kill it and let us eat and celebrate. For this my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found and they began to celebrate. Now his older son was in the field and as he came and drew near to the house, he heard music and dancing and he called one of the servants and asked, what these things meant. And he said to him, your brother has come and your father has killed the fatted calf because he has received him back safe and sound. But he was angry and refused to go in. 
His father came out and entreated him. But he answered his father, Look, these many years I have served you, and I have never disobeyed your commands. Yet you never gave me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours came, who has devoured your property with prostitutes, you killed the fatted calf for him. And he said to him, Son, you are always with me, and all that is mine is yours. It was fitting to celebrate and be glad, for this your brother was dead and is alive. He was lost and is found. There are multiple interpretations to this that have been taken throughout history, including at the time um, in older writings. First, we get the personal interpretation that a lot of people take, and this is usually what we teach. The father is God. The older son would be religious believers, and I would put religious in quotations for those that are deeply entrenched in their religion. And the prodigal son is whoever drifted away, who has one time, had to have one time been a believer, and uh, came back. Maybe it was you, and so that's how we preach it. That's completely fine. That is completely fine, and there's ways to see within this story different things represent different, different uh, qualities and actions that maybe the, the prodigal son did. But there were other ways that people interpreted this at the time. Some people, shortly after Jesus' death, wrote about this in the way that it was a nationalistic story. That father was God again, that the older son was Israel, and that the prodigal son was the Gentiles, was the believers being brought back in. And so you can kind of see that from history. You can kind of see where they got that idea um, that you have humanity at the beginning and you have the younger son that does not follow God while Israel stays true, um, though you can, you can argue about how true they stayed. Um, but then God brings them back in at the end and gives them all the benefits of being in the kingdom of God. There was also the cosmic interpretation that people took from this, um, where the father is God and the older son was the original spiritual family that existed before he created humans. And the prodigal son was the human family. So he created humans. Humans chose their inheritance. They, they, they wanted to be like God. They chose the deceit of the serpent. And they, they broke that. And they went and they went across the earth. And they dirtied themselves in the earth. And then eventually they're brought back home. Repentance through Jesus. And they're brought back in. And uh, then they end up ruling and reigning with God in eternity. And we can see, they would say that spiritual beings, there are many spiritual beings that were jealous of humans and their right to reign in the fact that God created this planet and he gave it to humans, not the firstborn spiritual beings. So there's multiple interpretations when you look at these. Um, and that's kind of the point of like a longer story like this parable. There, there's a lot in there. Um, and so, so people read these and they get different things from these stories. And that's why it's fun to, like, to, to go back and kind of relook at these stories as we grow with knowledge of the Bible and as we grow with the Holy Spirit and see what the Holy Spirit points out to us again. Um, to finish off with, we'll do an exemplary story where there's a question asked. Jesus gives a direct story with an answer all in it. And we'll also look at the historicity and what we might miss out of this story. Um, on one occasion, an expert in the law stood up to test Jesus, i.e. a scribe or a Pharisee. Teacher, he asked, 
What must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus replied, what is written in the law? How do you read it? He answered, love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and all your strength and all your mind and love your neighbor as yourself. You have answered correctly, Jesus replied. Do this and you will live. But he wanted to justify himself, so he asked Jesus, who is my neighbor? In reply, Jesus said, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and when he was attacked by robbers, they stripped him of his clothes, beat him, and went away, leaving him half dead. A priest happened to be going down the same road, and when he saw the man, he passed by on the other side. So too, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he traveled, came where the man was. And when he saw him, he took pity on him. He went to him and bandaged his wounds, pouring in oil pouring on oil and wine. And then he put the man on his donkey, brought him to an inn, and took care of him. The next day, he took out two denarii and gave, him, and gave them to the innkeeper. Look after him, he said, and when I return, I will reimburse you for any extra expense you may have had. Which of these three, these three do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of the robbers? The expert in the law replied, the one who had mercy on him. Jesus told him, go and do likewise. So on, a surface, on the surface, we can see two people pass by. We can look at the significance if we want to dig. We can look at the priest. We can look at the Levite. We can try to figure out why they did what they did. Um, some people say it might have been ceremonial. They, would, they had to keep themselves clean. There was this man dirtied and beat up on the road, and their religious duties kept them from helping the man. Um, and then a Samaritan comes. He didn't just pick any stranger. He could have picked a random stranger, but he picked a Samaritan. And there's a point to be made with the Samaritan. So there's, there's different, just on a whole, we can see that helping a person is good. That's a true neighbor. That's a good neighbor. If you want to be a good neighbor, you're going to help people in need. That's an easy lesson from the story. Um, but there's also points that he's making here. Like I said, I think, I think that the priest and the Levite, he's making some points about religion. If we know how the priest and the Levite operated and why they may have made their decisions, it's probably steeped in tradition and not wanting to be dirty and keep themselves upright and stuff. Which we've seen examples of Jesus saying, you got to get over that. So I think that's there. But then there's also the Samaritan aspect of what's there. And uh, Samaria was a territory. It was, it was, it was in Israel. Um, Samaria was a territory largely corresponding to the biblical allotments of the tribe of Ephraim in the western half, western half of Manasseh. Um, this area, if you know the geography now, it would be the West Bank. Um, after the death of Solomon, you have the splitting up of the empire. You have Judah and Israel. Uh, this territory constituted the southern part of the kingdom of Israel. They grew wealthy through trade, and they mixed with foreign people because of all the trade that was going through them. Um, sometimes when they talk about Samaria, you kind of get the feeling that these are just down and out dirty people because of the way the Jews treated them. They actually had some wealth. It wasn't quite like that, um, but they were mixed race. They, they, they married foreigners, and so there was an animosity between them and the other Jews um, quite a bit. Jews would actually travel around the land going out of their way to stay away from the half-breeds, as they referred to them. 
So you stayed away from these Samaritans, and we, we saw that with the woman at the well, too. There's the multiple layers of shock that Jesus is talking to this woman at the well, because she is a Samaritan. But the fact that, that the Jews, the upright Jews, would go all the way around the territory instead of going straight through them, just so they don't have to deal with these half-breeds, with these people. Um, and then Jesus is talking to men of the law, and the hero of the story is the Samaritan. These people that they despise, the people that honestly, they, they, they are disgusted by these people. And that's the hero of Jesus' story. That's the good neighbor. And so Jesus is making a point there that, you know, you, you can take racial stuff. He's, he's bashing on racism right here because of the, the mixed foreign and uh, just the, the getting through of your disgust and looking down on people. I mean, there's multiple layers there. And so that's, that's kind of the idea with some of these parables. The more you dig in, the more you figure out why is Jesus using a Samaritan? He could have picked anybody. Why is he using 10 silver coins? He could have just said a coin. You know, it's, it's one of those you got to dig in. You got to see if there's any layers to this because that's kind of what parables do. So that's just kind of where I was going with it today. Um, just talking about parables. There's a lot of things there within the parables. The good thing is, is if you don't know some of that background information, the lesson is still sitting there for you. Some parables can be a little bit confusing, um, especially depending on what translations you read and how they, they arrange things. But you can always get something out of a parable, and you can always dig deeper into a parable. And sometimes they're good places to start. If you're, if you're trying to learn how to bring history and context in to your biblical reading and understanding, they're, they're great places to start to do that because you're gonna get surface value and then you might be able to pull stuff out from beneath it, why Jesus is using certain words, certain people. Um, it always gives you something to chew on. You get to process the stories. Remember Mark 4, Jesus is saying, I have, some people are not getting these meanings, but you guys are getting the meanings. You guys are understanding the secrets of the kingdom of heaven. Um, so that's what I would, I would encourage people to dig in. Um, reading your Bible, sometimes you read certain things and it can be really confusing, but I think with parables, it's a safe place to go when you're looking for something to read. And again, it's a safe place to, to go and practice some digging into the background. Um, you can read through them multiple times. If you read these stories five years from now, you may be catching things you didn't catch before. Um, and just ask, ask the Holy Spirit to show you things that you may not have seen in these stories before. So I think, parables are, I think parables are important. I think that they also show the principle of, of evangelizing and of teaching in a way that is current within the culture. Jesus was acting as super, rab, super rabbi when he was teaching in parables. And I think that there's, there's that aspect of it too. So I would just encourage people to, if you want to start digging into your Bible, if you want more than just surface reading, uh, start with some parables. See if you can find some stuff in the parables that maybe you didn't see was there before. And just get this process going of looking and digging in. So, let's pray. Lord, we love you. We thank you for your word. We thank you for the depth of your word. We thank you that we'll never fully understand all of it and that there's always things to grab from your word. I thank you that, that as we go forth, 
There's still things that will they'll draw us and pull us. There are things that you will impart to us in your word. And we're just, I'm just amazed at, at, at how you put it all together and how it still remains. So Jesus, we thank you for that. And we thank you for, for speaking that life into your word. And Jesus, we thank you for being a good teacher in addition to a good shepherd. And I just pray that we would take the time to understand your words. I ask that you would, you would bring those moments to us where you just show us something and we're excited about something that we just got from your word. Holy Spirit, teach us. Show us, light it up. Your word is a light. And, and just, just bring that forward to us and in our minds. We love you, Lord. We thank you for all that you've done for us. We thank you for your word, the miracle everything that it is today after thousands and thousands of years. And we're just thankful for that. We love you, Lord. In your name we pray, Jesus. Amen.